Father, I thank you for your word and its power. I thank you that your story is greater than our story. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the blood of Jesus. None of us would be here today without. Lord, we love you. We praise you. And today, I pray that your name would be exalted over any man. This day is not about a man. It's about you. I pray that your name would be exalted over Sagemont Church. Because we're here for you, Jesus. And I pray that this would be the beginning. Rather, let it be a continuance of you doing great things in us and great thing among us so that your name would be exalted and lifted high in the city of Houston and the world. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We'll let's open up our Bibles today to the book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 11, verse 22. The book of 1 Chronicles, chapter 11, verse 22. It's Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and then you have 1 Chronicles, First Chronicles eleven twenty two. We'll get there in just a minute. Let's put your thumb in the Bible there if you're at home, and then we'll go from there. Well, good morning, Sagemont. Um, it is such an honor to be preaching to you today, finally, and um, to be considered your next senior pastor. And I want to, before we we get started today, and I'm start preaching in the text. I want to thank a few people that very much need to be thanked. And first, I want to thank. Um, Pastor uh, John Morgan, Dr. Morgan. I've gotten to know him over the last month or so, and it's just been such an incredible honor in the short time that we've had together just to learn from him and hear his heart. Every time he was talking and I was learning, I was taking notes. If you don't believe me, ask him. I'm taking notes. I said, Pastor, is it okay if I take notes? Because I'm learning from you here. And he's just been such a gracious man to me. Um, his faithfulness over the last 53, 54 years as a pastor, is so evident in the people of this church. You guys are amazing. The Holy Spirit is evident among your kindness. Your love is evident, and that is, I think that's a direct fruit of his faithfulness as a pastor. So thank you, Dr. Morgan. I'd also like to thank Dr. Autry, Dr. Denny Autry, who gave me permission last night to call him Denny. So thank you, Denny. Um, I'm still going to call you Dr. Autry, but um, uh, Pastor Chuck Snyder, uh, uh, Freeman Tomlin, Stuart Rothberg, Bill Cole, all the deacons, all the staff, Tammy Ford, and all the pastor search team that have led through this transition. We love you, and I know on behalf of Sagemont, we want to say to all of you, thank you so much for your leadership in this transition. And so, um, as you may have heard, as you may have heard, I'm an expositional preacher. <clears throat> what that means is I preach verse by verse through the Bible. And uh, sort of chapter by chapter, book by book, that's kind of how I do it. But today I want to teach on a subject, because I've got, I've got one Sunday, and then you're going to vote, so, um, you know, I don't know if I'm coming back. So i got one Sunday here with you, and so I'm just going to pick a topic, and we're going to talk about something, and I think it's going to be a subject that's going to be very important for us in the years to come here at Sage Modern, and it's this, because I want to challenge you, and I want to challenge myself that in the years to come, I want us to be a church that is full of lion chasers. In the years to come, I want us to be a church that is full of lion chasers. Now, let me explain to you what I mean by that. 
As you know, this church was founded by an actual lion chaser. For those of you that have been around Sagemont for a while, you know this. You know, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've heard the stories. <clears throat> this church was pastored for 53 years by Dr. Morgan, who, who actually hunted lions. And he was, he was, I was hanging out with him the other day. <clears throat> and I said, tell me one of the coolest lion hunting stories you got. And he started telling me how he tracked on foot a lion for 200 miles over 10 days and before they ever encountered the lion, 200 miles on foot, 10 days before they ever encountered the lion, which is crazy to me. That's crazy to me because as a rule of thumb, I, if, I personally, I don't know about you, but I personally try not to be in any situation where I'm lower on the food chain than anything I might be going after. Amen. That's sort of a personal goal of mine. And so if you think about it, if you're in a, if you're in an area where, where there's actual lions, what, what I've sort of decided is I'm not going into that area. Because if you go into that area and there's a lion there and he decides that he wants to eat you for lunch, he has the ability to actually do that. And so I avoid those situations at all costs. But here's the thing. In a very real sense, because this church was founded by a lion chaser, that Sagemont has in its very DNA the foundation to be a lion-chasing church. Now, for you animal lovers out there, I'm not actually talking about going out and hunting lions. We're not going to do that. But what I am talking about is this. When I say that we're going to be a lion-chasing church, what that means in the next few years that we have together on this planet, that we're going to be a church that faces, that we're, we're going to be a church that walks towards and even runs towards and wades into the challenges that we face as a church to lift high the name of Jesus Christ in this city and around the world. That's what it means to be a lion-chasing church. And I say this today because, Sagemont, you and I, we really, really are facing a choice as a church. <clears throat> and here's the choice. Is that we can look around at this incredible building. We can, we can look around at all the amazing programs that we have as a church. We can look at all the ways that God has so powerfully moved over the last 53 years and sort of fold our arms and, and think we've arrived and put this thing into cruise control. Or, or we can look at all the amazing ways that God has moved so powerfully over the last 53 years and instead get on our knees before the Lord and say, and ask God, God, would you do it again? God, would you do it again? It's a bold prayer. God, would you do more for the glory of your name and the glory of the name of Christ in the next 53 years than you did in the first 53 years. And here's an even bolder prayer. Would you be willing to pray, God, would you use me to do it? That's the choice. And so that we face today. Every one of us faces that choice today, really. And to illustrate what I, what I mean about being a church full of lion chasers, I want to quickly tell you a story of two men. One of them you've probably heard of before. One of them you have heard of before. One of them you may not have heard of before. And those two men are King David and the captain of his guard, whose name is Benaiah. Now, here's the thing. Both of these men began their lives. And they began their careers that were men that were courageous and, and were powerfully used by God. Powerfully used by God. But how, the, how these two men finished their lives was really radically different. 
And in many, in many ways, church, what made the difference and how these two men finished their lives came down to how they responded to that exact same choice that you and I face today. The choice to raise our hand and say, God, use me to fight your battles. God, use me to make a difference in the world for the glory of your name or to be content and to rest on everything that God has done in the past. One man chose the difficult path. One man chose the easy path. And it really did make all the difference in how their lives ended up. And so let's take a minute and let's talk about Benaiah. And so I want you to notice, let's go ahead and look there. First Chronicles chapter 11, verse 22. I want you to notice how the Scripture describes and introduces Benaiah to us. I want you to pay attention to that. How the Bible sort of like introduces him to us. I think it's important. First Chronicles chapter 11, verse 22. It says, in Benaiah, the son of Jehoda was a valiant man of Kabzeel. It says he was a doer of great deeds. He struck down two heroes of Moab, and he also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when the snow had fallen. Now, I love that. I think that's really cool because when the scripture introduces Benaiah to us, it tells us some important things about his character. And I've noticed that, that, that whenever you're introducing someone to a group of people and you're, you're one, you've got a group of people that you've got somebody important that you want to introduce to, what you do is you always talk about the things first that most define them. And so when I was introducing my wife to you in the video, first video I gave to you guys, and I was introducing my wife to you and talking about her, I said, her name is Jennifer. She loves me, she loves her children, and most of all, she loves Jesus, right? When I was introducing her to you, I wanted you to know kind of the three things that, that most defined her. And so it's interesting to me that when the scripture introduces Benaiah to us, it says three things. It says, Benaiah was a doer of great deeds. It says that he struck down two heroes of Moab. That's a big deal. Moabites were a big deal, struck down two of them. And the last thing it says is he struck down a lion in a pit on a day when the snow had fallen. That's a fascinating way to introduce someone. Now here's the question for you. Church, why, when the, when the infallible Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God was introducing Benaiah to us, why does it include the fact that Benaiah killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day? Why does it do that? I think it's pretty simple. Church, I think the Bible wanted to make sure that you knew that Benaiah was a lion hunter. He was a lion chaser. It's who he was. It defined him. Chasing down lions and facing lions, it's who he was. It was a part of his DNA. It was his makeup. It's what he did. Now, what's interesting, church, is that the the scripture doesn't really say much about that encounter. It doesn't tell us why he was walking in a pit on a, on a snowy day. It doesn't tell us whether, whether he was chasing the lion or the, or the lion was chasing him. The only thing it tells us is that there was a moment in Benaiah's life where he sort of was walking around and he found himself face to face with a man-eating lion. And in that moment, he faced a choice that was really, really important. He didn't realize in the moment how important that, that choice was. In the moment when he was face to face in a pit on a snowy day with a man-eating lion, he was faced with a choice to do what I would have done, which is to slowly and quietly walk out of the pit. Amen. 
or to face the lion and kill it. I recently uh, read a book about this actual encounter. It's called The Lion in a Pit on a Snowy Day, and, and the author talked about the significance of that one moment in Benaiah's life, that one moment where he made the choice not to walk away from the fight, but to walk towards the fight. It says this, It says, God is always using past experiences to prepare us for future opportunities. But those God-given opportunities often come disguised as man-eating lions. Now now hear this, because I think it's it's crucial. This is how we react when we encounter those lions will determine everything. We can cower in fear and run away from our greatest challenges, or we can run towards them and seize those God-ordained opportunities. Now, church, here's this point, that, that when Benaiah was faced with the choice, do I face the lion or do I run from the lion, he faced it. And here's the thing that hit me. He didn't have to do that. He didn't have to do that. He, this guy had absolutely, positively nothing whatsoever to prove. He, he, had, he was a doer of great deeds, for crying out loud. He had already faced down two heroes of Moab, and he killed them. This guy had absolutely nothing to prove whatsoever. But instead of resting on past successes, he chose to walk into one more fight, to face one more lion, and he killed it. And Sagemont, I want you to know that that moment right there, that single moment where he made the choice to face the fight, not to walk away from the fight, absolutely changed the trajectory of the rest of his life. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Let's look at verse 24, 1 Chronicles 11, 24. It says, These things did Benaniah, the son of Jehoda, and won a name beside the three mighty men. Verse 25, it says, he was renowned among the 30, but he did not attain to the three. Watch what it says last there. It said, and David set him over his bodyguard. And so what the scripture just told us is that King David at that time must have been looking for a captain of his bodyguard, a guy to personally be his personal bodyguard. And someone came to him and said, hey, have you heard of Benaiah? That guy's a doer of great deeds. And not only that, but he struck down two heroes of Moab. And not only that, David, check this out. This guy killed a lion in a pit on a snowy day. And King David said to himself, I don't know about y'all, but anybody that'll walk into a pit where a lion's already in it, and on top of that, it's snowing and kills him, I'm in. Sign me up. I want this guy to personally be my bodyguard. And it didn't stop there. He wasn't just David's personal bodyguard, but towards the later on in his life, he ended up being the head of the entire army. Listen, guys, listen, listen, listen. It was in that moment when Benaiah made the conscious choice to walk towards the fight, not away from the fight, that made all the difference in the future of his life. Made all the difference. Now, I want to compare Benaiah's story with the story of King David. Because here's the thing, guys. Later on in David's life, We're going to see King David faced with a very similar choice. And that was a choice to walk towards another battle or to rest on his past successes and and sort of walk away. And what we're going to do is we're going to see David choose not to face the battle. We're going to see King David choose not to walk towards the battle. And, and, And that one decision 
that David makes, just like Benaiah, really will sort of change the whole trajectory of the rest of his life. And let me show you what I'm talking about. And I'm going to read a verse to you, famous verse, that describes David later in his life after he had won countless battles in the name of the Lord. It's in 2 Samuel 11.1. 2 Samuel 11.1. Don't turn there, just listen carefully. It says, in the spring of the year, a time when kings go out to battle, watch what it says next. It said, David sent Joab. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. The Bible sort of starts off and says this was the time when kings, when leaders were supposed to be leading their army, the the, the army of the living God, fighting his battles. It was that time of year when kings were supposed to be leading, but this particular time, the scripture says that David sent someone in his place. It says that David sent Joab. Now that begs the question, as I was reading this, that begs the question, what was going on in David's life that was so important then, that in a time when kings go out to battle that he sent someone in his place this time? What, what was, there's, got, there's got to be something going on that was really critical in David's life that he missed out on the battle this time. Uh, maybe maybe he had some really important governmental meeting that he couldn't miss out on. Joab, take my place. Maybe David had some real critical issue in the city that he alone as king had to deal with. Y'all with me? I mean, there, there obviously, obviously, was some absolutely critical thing going on in David's life that on in that springtime when kings go out to battle that he sent Joab instead of going and himself. Well, let's find out what was going on that was so important that was so important that David missed out. Let's let's find out what was going on. Second Samuel eleven one. This is in the spring of the year. The time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Ramah. But David remained in Jerusalem. In the next verse, it tells us exactly what he was doing that was so important. In verse 2, it says, It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. And we'll just stop right there. What was, what was going on that was so important? What was going on that was so critical that J- David chose not to lead God's army into battle? And the answer was absolutely nothing. He was on his couch. His army's out fighting the battle. He should have been leading. The Bible said he should have been leading, but he's laid up watching, I don't know, Israeli Netflix. I don't know. He was, he was on the couch. And what's fascinating to me as I thought about it is, is that David did not begin his life that way. David began his life as a, as a lion chaser, as a lion killer. When he was a shepherd boy, he killed a bear. He killed a lion. Protecting his sheep. This was the same guy that when the army of Israel is, is up on the top of the valley of Elah, David came and said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that is defying the armies of the living God and when they're all quaking in their boots he walks down into the valley picks up a stone puts it in a slingshot and drops the nine foot tall giant make no mistake this guy was a lion chaser in his youth but then something happened something happened 
Something changed. Something began to turn somewhere along the way in David's heart. And here's what changed. And I think the answer is pretty simple. I think David just got complacent. He got complacent. Who knows? Maybe he was tired. I've been there. Maybe, maybe he thought he was too old. And he thought to himself, you know what? I'm tired of taking risks, man. I'm going to let the younger guys take the risks. Maybe he thought to himself, maybe, maybe, maybe he was dealing with insecurity. Maybe he thought, you know what? I'm, I'm going to let the young guys do this because the young guys don't need me anymore. I'm just going to get in the way. Or maybe he made that decision, and most likely he made that decision because he thought he'd earned himself a break. He thought he'd earned himself a break. It was springtime when kings go out to battle, but David was thinking to himself, you know what? I've fought enough battles. I've won enough victories, killed enough bears, I've killed enough giants, I've killed enough lions. And so in this season of my life, I'm not going to fight, but I'm going to rest here on my couch. I don't shout it out, but theological question for you. What did that one decision, not to get in the fight, but to stay on his couch, what did it cost him? One decision. What did it cost him? That one decision to lay up on the couch instead of getting in the fight ended up costing him quite a bit. Let me read this to you one more time. 2 Samuel 11, 2. And it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. I saw something this morning in this text. True story. I saw something this morning in this text I've never noticed before because I was reading through the scripture, getting ready to preach. I noticed this. Watch what it says next. It says, And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is it not Bethsaida, the daughter of Elam, the wife of Uriah? And so obviously David had seen this woman before. He had been looking before. He had sort of, he sort of realized that was her. And it, bottom line, this man was walking in complacency. He got bored. He, was, he was, should have been leading. He was up on the top of his roof. He walked out. He sees the woman. He's overcome with lust. And then it said he sent for her. And that one decision, that one decision in many ways would absolutely ruin the rest of his life. That one decision that David makes when he should have been leading, he should have been in the fight, that one decision right there, his life would never be the same. And and sort of, if you think about it, some men finish their life really well. Some women finish their life really well. Some people finish their lives really well, on fire for God, serving him, you know, going after everything God wants them to do for the glory of his name. And some men finish poorly. Some women finish poorly. Some people get focused on money. Some people get focused on retirement accounts. Some people get focused on success and power and approval and comfort, and they don't finish well at all. And some men and women just finish okay. They've got past battles and victories, but somewhere along the way they got complacent and they don't finish very well, and that's what is going on with David and what led to that place where he sort of just finished his life, sort of eh, was complacency. And so here's the question, Sagemont. This is, this is the point. This is where I'm going. Listen, this is exactly everything we're coming towards today, and it's this. We are faced with that same, that same exact choice as a church. 
And the choice that we're faced is this. Are we going to spend the next years of Sagemont's story being a couch sitter or a lion chaser? I want every single one of you that is in the sound of my voice, that can hear my voice right now, I just want you to ask that question and do it before the Lord. Am I going to spend the next years of Sagemont's story, am I going to be a couch sitter? Am I going to be a lion chaser? Are we going to be a church that approaches the future years like David, where we lay up on the couch being content with all our past battles and victories and successes? Are we going to face the future years like Benaiah, that we don't walk away from battles, but we walk toward battles in the name of the Lord? Now, here's the thing that I want to be really clear on, church, is that Sagemont over the last 53 years has been a church that's full of lion chasers. You guys have actually changed the world. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard over and over and over again about how God has used the people of this church to change untold countless lives in the name of Jesus Christ. So make no mistake, this church is full of lion chasers, but the all-important question today is what about the next 53 years? Five years, 10 years, 20 years from now, Will you be described, seriously, will you be described as a person that at some point in your story, will I be described as a person that at some point in my story, I got content and I got comfortable with all my past victories and all my past successes and all my past battles in the name of the Lord and lay up? Or will we be known as people, will we be known as a church, will I be known as a person that whatever, with whatever time that I have left, with whatever time you have left, you raise your hand unto the Lord and say, God, if you want to send me, here I am. If you want to send me, here I am. If there is a pit with a lion in it that you need me to walk into, sign me up, God. That's your choice. <clears throat> Which one will it be? And guys, in case you were wondering, I'd like to just really quickly tell you a couple of lions that we're facing together as a church. The first one is the city of Houston. Houston is the fourth largest city in the United States of America. I don't know if you knew that. It's got right now 2.3 million people in our city, and it's projected to grow 400,000 people in the next five years. That's a lot of traffic. In the next five years, it's going to be probably going to jump to the third largest city in the United States, and the vast majority of those 2.3 million people are not followers of Christ. That's a pretty big lion. I'm going to tell you a bigger lion that we're going to face. And it's the world. The world's population is getting close to 8 billion people. And of those 8 billion people, around 6 billion people are not Christians. And of those 6 billion people, there are thousands of unreached people groups which are distinct groups of people that have never heard the name of Jesus, never heard the name of Christ, that they've never been presented the gospel, they've never even heard his name. And if you think about that, that's a pretty big lion that we're facing. Six billion people that if they do not hear the name of Jesus Christ and trust in him as their Lord and Savior and, and, are, and are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, that they will spend eternity in a place that Jesus described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. We've got some pretty big, pretty ferocious lions that we're facing as a church. Now, some of you 
maybe saying to yourself, now come on, Matt, seriously, is it even possible for us to make any kind of significant dent in that number, 2.3 million people? Come on, Matt, isn't it a little bit of an exaggeration to think that this little church can actually make a significant difference in, in, in the lives and the eternities of six billion people? that do not know Christ around the world, where here's the answer. Here's the answer. It's a big, fat exaggeration to think that we could do something like that, that we could make a dent in something like that if we do it in our power. It is an exaggeration if we try to face lines like that in our own strength. As a matter of fact, it's impossible to face lions like that in our own street. But the last time I checked church, when it comes to his power, nothing is impossible. Do you believe it? Do you really, really believe that? That nothing is impossible with the living God? Here's another question. Do you really believe? Do you really believe that God can use you to make a difference? And that's six billion people. It's one thing to say, yeah, God can use us. Amen. I believe that. But it's another thing altogether to say, but God, could you use me? And there's a verse that I shared with you in the first video that I did for Sagemont. It's one of my life verses, Ephesians 3.20, and, and it, it has defined my ministry. <laughs> it says this. It says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly it's saying God is able to do something. This is, what the, this is what the Bible is saying. I'm not making this up. I, I didn't write this. This is the Bible. And it's saying that God is able to do something far more abundantly. If you look in the Greek, it's crazy. It's like he's saying God can do all this stuff. What can God do? Now to him, that's God, who is able to do. What's he able to do? Far more abundantly than all we can ask for. Or all we can think. And so what this is saying, it's incredibly comforting to me because I know that my imagination is limited sometimes. When I start having crazy dreams about, God, could you really use me to change the city of Houston? God, could you use Sagemont to change the world? Could you really do that? Then the enemy starts whispering. It's like, man, there's no way. But the scripture just said, now to him who is able, not us, but now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than anything we can ask or even think of. That's a lot. How's God going to do this? How's God going to do this far more abundant stuff? Watch what it says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than anything we, or all that we can ask or think according to the power that is at work within Bethmore. John Morgan, Matt Carter, Bill Cole, Chuck Snyder, my iConnect leader. No. It says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than anything we can ask or think according to the power that is at work in us, in you. What that verse, by the way, this is not a verse that's talking about what God can do for you. This is a verse that's talking about what God can do through you. 
And what it's saying, guys, is that you have inside of you the Holy Spirit of the living God. Is that you have inside of you that at your salvation, when you trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you repent of your sin and you were washed with the blood, that he gave you the Holy Spirit. It is in you. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives inside of you. Do you believe that? Man, let him loose. Let him go. Let him work through you. He is in you. The power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is inside of you. And that's why Paul says, now to him who is able to do more than you can even ask or think of. According to the power that is at work in you. How in the world are we going to reach 2.3 million people in the city of Houston with the gospel? The answer is you can't. But church, I'm telling you right now that he can. And he can do it through you. You know how I know that? Because he said he can. But God is looking for a remnant of people. No matter how old, no matter how young, that are willing to raise their hand and say, here I am, Lord, send me. I'm going to land the plane today on this sermon. I'm going to show you a picture. I'm going to go ahead and show it to you. This picture was taken in 1902 at a little Baptist church near Cedar Creek, Texas, near Athens, Texas, where I grew up. That pastor there on the left with his hand in the air is named Jeremiah Benjamin Moon. It's a cool name. This is a little church. I don't know the name of the church. I knew it was a Baptist church. They're in some part of Cedar Creek, and, and they're having a baptism service. I keep this picture, I have it framed, I keep it up on my wall in, in my office to remind myself of something. Because I was looking at this picture years ago and I noticed something because it's really cool because every time I look at it, and if you ever want to come in my office and look at it, it's really cool. You study, I find something new about it every time. I don't know why people didn't smile back in the day. Does anybody know that? I have no idea why they didn't smile. Nobody smiled. There's like one little kid. He's like four years old in the back and he's grinning. His mom saw the picture, probably he got in trouble. But I, every time I, I look at this picture, I see something new. And one day, y'all look at it real carefully because I'm going to ask you a question. All right, y'all bring that picture down. Now let me ask you this. One day I was looking at that picture and I noticed something. I noticed, and it hit me like a ton of bricks, I noticed that, that there is one thing that every single person in that picture has in common. And if you look closely, you'll catch it. Did you see it? Some of it might have hit you. I was looking at it one day, it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was like, there is one thing that every single one of these people in this picture has in common. You know what it is? They're all dead. Every one of them. In 1902, that picture was taken. They were just summer day with a bunch of their friends from church coming down to the water, have a nice baptism service, celebrate the goodness of God in their lives. But within the last 118 years, Every single solitary one of those people lived their lives and died and went home to be with Jesus. <clears throat> I keep that picture on my wall for this reason. 
I keep that picture on my wall to remind me that life is short. I keep that picture in the wall of my office to remind me that you and I have such a short amount of time to make our dent on the Great Commission and then it's over. I I keep that picture on my wall to remind me that none of us knows how long we're going to live. Some of us have a year, some of us have a few, some of us have 10, some have 20, some have 30, some have 40, some might have a few more, but the fact of the matter is, is that every single one of us in this room has a limited amount of time for God to use us to make a dent in the great commission, which he has given all of us to, and then we are going to pass the torch to the next generation, and we're going to go to the house and be with Jesus forever. keep that picture on my wall to remind myself of that. And so the question, guys, that I'm challenging every single one of us, including myself today, is this question that I'm going to land the plane and be done. Am I going to spend the next years of my life on the couch like David? Or am I going to spend the next years of my life like Benaiah, chasing lions for the glory of God? I'll end with this. Years ago, I heard a quote And I've never forgotten it. You know how you hear quotes in sermons and you read quotes in books and and they maybe they impact you and then you completely forget them. But when I heard this quote, I don't even remember who said it. It was so impactful. I forgot who even said it. But this quote was so impactful on me that I've never forgotten it. And some of you are going to hear it today and you're never going to forget it either either because it's going to define the rest of your life. And here's the quote. It says, I want to live my life in such a way that when I die, all of hell rejoices that I'm out of the fight. Think about that. I want to live my life in such a way that when I die, all of hell rejoices that I'm out of the fight. Because when couch sitters die, I'm sorry, but I don't even think hell even notices. But when lion chasers die, hell says, finally. Because that's one less mighty warrior of God that they have to worry about. Sagemont, time is short. God is on our side. And Jesus Christ is worth it. Let's go chase some lions together. Let's pray. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, I think I'd be remiss if I did not remind anybody who is listening to me today, whether at home or even in this room, that you can't be a lion chaser if you're not first changed by the lion of Judah. His name is Jesus. If there's never been a time in your life where you have said, Jesus, I need you to change me. I need you to save me. I need you to clean me up. I need you to make me new. All you have to do is say, Lord, I, I can confess my sins to you. And I ask that you would forgive them. Those sins make be clean by the sacrifice that you made on the cross. 
and save me. That you'd be my Lord. That you'd be my Savior. And he'll do the rest. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Maybe you're listening to this today and you're a Christian and if you're just completely honest with yourself, you're like, Matt, I've been on the couch. I love Jesus. I love his church. But Matt, I've been on the couch. Just ask him to give you the strength to get up. But Matt, my knees are weak. Ask him to give you the strength to get up. But Matt, I'm struggling to believe. We'll ask him to give you the strength to get up. But Matt, it's been a long time. Ask him for the strength to get up. And Father, I pray that you would do that, not for the name of this church, but for your name, not for my glory, but for yours. And Father, I pray that we would look back on this time, that we'd look back on this day, and we would be able to praise you and thank you for all that you've done between right now and then, and rejoice in you and say, God, you are good, and you are true to your promise. Lord, we ask you would do it all for your name. So it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.